If you would remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. We saw in chapter 19 that Abraham's nephew Lot acted irrationally to the information and commands provided by the two angelic messengers. We noted that Lot's behavior was not a spur-of-the-moment type of thing, but rather was the direct results of years of living uncritically in a godless culture and among godless people. Lot raised his family in a thoroughly pagan city and culture, and they had all compromised their values in order to get along with the people of that contaminated culture. The compromising only increased over the years and not only negatively affected his faith and practice, but also the people around him. We saw that that account was a powerful warning to us as Christians in the way we should raise our families, that we should not follow the ways of Lot who walked by sight, but that we should follow the ways of Abraham who walked by faith. And yet, even saying that, I closed with a prayer last time that included this comment, that Abraham was not perfect by any means, as we will see again next week, but he was a man of faith, and God honored that faith. So it's time to look again at the imperfect walk of an imperfect man who had definitely imperfect faith, the man we call Abraham, chapter 20. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled toward Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you. And before all men, you are cleared. And Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray. 
Well, God, last week we read the very sad account of a man, Lot, who accommodated and compromised with the culture of his day. And now we've just read another sad account of compromise. Lord, your servant Abraham stumbled badly in his faith, and yet you still providentially protected him and his wife. Teach us, O Lord, what you want us to learn through this account. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. No doubt uh, many of you remember that Abraham used this same deception of saying that Sarah was his sister back in chapter 12. There was a famine in the land, so Abraham and his fam took his family and they went to Egypt to sojourn there. In Egypt, it was Pharaoh's officials who saw Sarah and praised her beauty to Pharaoh. Pharaoh took her into his house, but the Lord struck Pharaoh's house with great plagues because of Sarah. And when he found that out, he called, Pharaoh called in Abraham and berated him for doing such a thing to Pharaoh, for deceiving Pharaoh. Well, what did Abraham learn from that Egypt experience? Reading chapter 20, we'd have to say, not very much. Indeed, it sure doesn't appear that he learned anything at all of the lesson that God intended him to learn in Egypt. What lesson would that be? I would say it's a lesson both in the providence of God and a lesson in integrity. A dictionary definition of the word integrity is this, the quality of being honest and morally upright. The quality of being honest and morally upright. God providentially protected Sarah in Egypt despite her and Abraham's dishonesty and lack of being morally upright. The lesson they should have learned in Egypt for the future was that they should trust in God's providential care. So we fast forward to chapter 20 and we ask, was Abraham completely honest and morally upright with the king of Gerar? And did Abraham and Sarah place their trust in God's providential care? The answer to both questions is clearly no. In fact, they both acted as if the Egyptian experience hadn't happened at all. In chapter 20 of verse 2, Abraham flat out repeated the same lie he used in Egypt. And Abraham said to, of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So the king of Gerar took Sarah. What Abraham said was a half-truth. As we read later in verse 12, Sarah was the daughter of his father, but not the daughter of his mother. She was, in fact, his half-sister. Well, that's a half-truth. You might call it that, I guess. But a half-truth means that the other half is what? A lie. Now, to God's way of thinking, there's no such thing as a half-lie. That's a distinction without a difference because a half-lie is still a lie. And God hates all sin, including lies. Anyone who would try to justify Abraham's actions because of what he said, because what he said was partially true, must think that God is only partially holy, partially pure, partially just. 
which is ludicrous. God is completely holy and just and hates all sin, including whatever version. Any, any part that's a lie is a lie, period. It's real simple. I started this message by reminding you of the lesson that Lot had, uh, we learned from Lot, and that is that comp compromising uh, that increases, and it always does, once you compromise a little bit, it will increase unless you confess it, repent of it, and stop it. If you don't, it'll take you further and further and further. And compromising over all those years not only negatively affected Lot's faith and practice, but also other people around him. And that is the nature of ungodly behavior. It affects many other people as besides the original sinner. With that in mind, listen again to verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is married. God came to him in that dream and he said, You're a dead man because you have a married woman. That's obviously a going to be an immediate and a rather negative consequence. We see also in verse 18 that God had also closed the wombs of all of that were in the king's household. Again, significant and immediate consequences, not of their sin, but of Abraham and Sarah's sin. And just as immediately, though, King Abimelech protested that he was innocent. That he didn't know that Sarah was married. In fact, since Abimelech was on trial before the judge of all the earth, he used Sarah and Abraham's own words as witnesses in his own, the king's defense. Look again at verses 4 and 5. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands I have done this. Abimelech essentially said, you're correct, Lord. We have an integrity crisis here. But it's not my integrity that's at fault. And it's not me who sinned. The sin lies with those liars, Abraham and Sarah. They're the ones lacking integrity. They're the ones who deceived me. Notice carefully again the king's words. In the integrity of my heart, I have done this. And in verse 6, we see that God agreed with the king. Because we read that God said to Abimelech in a dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. To Abraham's everlasting shame, this pagan king had more integrity in his heart at this point in time than Abraham, who was a believer of the one true God. That's why this sermon is entitled, Another Integrity Crisis. And friends, in case you haven't noticed it, there's a huge integrity crisis in America today. And how sad that many unbelievers in our own day can make the exact same charge as Abimelech. They could say something like this, I'm just acting on the words of those Christians. I didn't know the whole story because they didn't tell me the whole truth. I acted in integrity, but they did not. 
they were telling half-truths, trying to make themselves look better. Better than they really, obviously, are. And I think any of you who's honest will admit there are times where all of us leave out part of the story. And why do we do that? Because by leaving part of it out, it makes us look better. Now, it's not totally out of the realm of possibility that there could be some circumstances where that could be okay. But the vast, vast majority of the time, it is not okay. It's a way of lying. And I don't care if it's only 10%. And you tell me it's 90% true. At least 10%, that's a lie, intending to deceive. If you're guilty of this, then confess your sin. Ask God to enable you to be more honest and to act with greater integrity. Now, if that was the whole story, it would be bad enough. But to use a line I repeated over and over last week, it gets worse. In fact, it is the next part of the story that really makes me cringe. After God warned Abimelech to restore Abraham's wife to him, God bore testimony that Abraham was a prophet and that this prophet would pray for the king and God would allow the king to live. Now, as a side note, this is the first time in the Bible that the word prophet is used. And the work of a prophet in Scripture is intercession between God and mankind, as we see exactly specified in verse 7. So after he tells the king if he'll, uh, this prophet will pray for him and live, just to be sure Abimelech understood, God gives him the flip side of the coin also. And he says, but if you will not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. And we know the king clearly understood this message because in verse 8, we, it records that he got up first thing in the morning and he called all of his servants into him and his, he has told them exactly what he'd been told. And they were all greatly frightened. And he wasted no time, immediately sent for Abraham, and he restored Abraham's wife to him. But again, this is the part of the story that makes me cringe. And that is Abraham's really, really poor excuses that he gave to the king. In fact, a much better adjective than poor would be pathetic or miserably inadequate. Remember, chapter 20 begins with this statement. Now Abraham journeyed from the south country toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. King Abimelech had not sent an invitation to Abraham and said, why don't you come to Gerar and live here temporarily? Abraham decided to temporarily reside in the king's domain. To me, that makes the king's statements in verses 9 and 10 much more forceful. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? The king basically said, what did we ever do to you to cause you to treat us this way so shamefully and so wickedly? 
And very accurately, the king told Abraham, you have done things that ought not to be done. As I said a moment ago, what makes me cringe is that Abraham actually tried to justify his sinful actions before this pagan king. And what pitiful justification it was, and what a poor testimony to his God. While verses 11 through 13 have some truth in them, they're overall miserably inadequate. In fact, they remind me a lot of Lot's whining in the previous chapter. Telling the king that Abraham had asked his wife to show Abraham this kindness of everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. This kindness? Try this flat-out lie. And not only did he ask his wife to lie for him, but he asked her to lie for him, quote, everywhere they went. This isn't a one-time deal. Everywhere we go, you lie, woman. Personally, I'm thinking, really? Like you're actually proud of that kind of twisted logic? How incredibly pathetic. We are not told what King Abimelech thought of such flawed and twisted thinking. We're simply told what Abimelech did next. I think it's safe to say the king was in no way awed by Abraham. But he was afraid of Abraham's God. So the king gave many gifts to Abraham and Sarah and told them to settle wherever they wanted in the land. And he gave a huge sum of money, we don't know exactly what it was, but a huge sum of silver, a thousand pieces or whatever, to clear Sarah's name. In short, the king worked very hard to clear up the fallout from Abraham and Sarah's lies. And the reason, of course, was to appease their God. Even the king's choice of words make this clear. Notice in verse 16, when the king spoke to Sarah to indicate what he was doing to restore her honor, he said this, Behold, I have given to your brother a thousand pieces of silver. I think what the king was doing was reminding Sarah and Abraham, and I think God too, that both Sarah and Abraham had lied and had said that Abraham was Sarah's brother. And none of them had said husband. So I think he was saying it the way he did for a very specific purpose, although we're not told that exactly. Isn't it interesting that the ones who were guilty of sin caused great problems and work for others who did not commit sin? Again, that is the nature of sin, and that is part of the consequences of sin. We're not told, but... Can you imagine what the king would have done to Abraham when he found out the truth if God had not intervened? But God did intervene. However, we're still left with the question, what kind of testimony did Abraham have to non-believers in the one true God? People who desperately needed to know the truth that there was one God who was creator and Lord and Savior. And the answer is obvious. It's a very poor testimony indeed. What I want you to realize is what Abraham and Sarah's actions actually said to others. We know that's, that saying, and it's, it's true. Actions speak louder than words. What did their actions really say to the people that watched them and observed them? 
their actions said that they did not trust in their God's providence. So why should the king and his subjects want to trust in a God like that? You don't trust him, why should I? Again, I think the application for you and me is pretty obvious. When we sin, we are a poor testimony to the one we say that we serve. We say we're Christians. We take Christ's name. And when you and I sin before our peers, that's a lousy testimony. And on top of that, we cause a lot of pain and work to those associated with us, even though they're not a part of that sin. So not only are we a bad testimony, but we have negative consequences on them and their lives. And then we wonder why people don't want to come to Christ. Why they point to Christians and say, you're a bunch of hypocrites. The amazing thing is this is yet another example, not only of how inadequate we are, but how our sovereign God will still build his kingdom. I've told you many times, God can work in us, he can work through us, and when necessary, he can work despite us, which is what he did here, again, in Abraham's case. But how much better for God to work in and through us than to have to work despite us? How much better when he can work through our obedience to his commands and his holy word? How much more satisfying for us, too? How much more joyful, how much more rewarding to be his faithful servants. So we looked at the fact that Abraham's sin negatively affected the king and his whole household, but there's another person affected very negatively by this sin as well, by this lie, and that's his wife Sarah. Last week I berated Lot for his crass disregard for the honor and purity and safety of his daughters. Now we have the same concern and question about his uncle, Abraham. Where was the concern for his wife and her honor and her purity and her spiritual purity especially? It wasn't there. Again, what gross sin Abraham committed yet again against his wife. Because biblically, the husband is to be the provider and the protector of his wife and family. He is the one who is to lead them spiritually. But once again, Abraham was concerned only about his own safety and using his own wits instead of trusting in God. Doing the right thing in the right way for the right reasons, which God always honors. He did the wrong thing in the wrong way and for wrong reasons. And whoever told Abraham it was okay to lie and not trust in God's providence? Once again, he did not please God, and yet God mercifully once again intervened and did Abraham's job for him. He protected Abraham's wife. Abraham caused Sarah to lie. He coerced her into lying doesn't relieve her of her responsibility, but it does double his sin. To say that that's poor leadership as a husband is an understatement indeed. Again, sin has far-reaching consequences and effects, and you should never forget that. And the next time you are tempted to sin, think about this. 
you are not just sinning in private ways that affects only you. You're affecting everyone associated with you. And you're affecting the entire bride of Christ. Let me close with these thoughts from Dr. John Curran. Each of us have besetting sins that refuse to let us go. And these sins revisit us time and time again. And as in the case of Abraham, God continues to bring the situations upon us so that we should see our sin, that we should turn to Him, that we should trust Him and realize He will protect us. Such repetitive cycles highlight our besetting sins, but they also point to a solution, which is complete trust and faith in God. That was the solution in Abraham's day. It is the solution in our day. And if you don't deal with those sins, God will allow them to be brought before you time and time and time again until you finally wake up Call it what it is, repent of it, and ask him to deal with it, to take it away, whatever the cost. Until you face that, not only are you hurting yourself, you're hurting your spouse, your family, and your extended family, and the church of Jesus Christ. And you won't be happy, and you won't be joyful is your own worst enemy at that point. Let's pray. Lord, again this morning we have seen the moral failure of one of your children. Abraham's failure caused his wife's failure and much pain and work for the king and his whole household. Lord, I pray this morning that you would make us acutely aware of the negative ripple effects of our own sins. Make us aware, not just this morning, but every time we consider sinning. And when we do sin, Lord, I pray that you would make our consciences burn and smart with shame until we do cry out to you for your forgiveness and until we do beg you to change our sin-hardened hearts. Oh, Lord, grow us in faith and obedience, we pray. Make us more like Jesus, not because we can do it, but by your power, Holy Spirit. Work in us and change us. And if there are those here today hanging on to besetting sins, Lord, I pray that you would bring them in front of their face even now. And I pray that you would break their hearts and cause them to repent and confess them so they might again know your favor and blessings not only in their lives, but in the lives of all who know them. Thank you that you can work even despite us, but I pray that we would take joy in the days ahead knowing you're working in and through us because we're being obedient. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.